Some of you have already heard this word of thanks, but I want to thank uh, Pastor Philip and the church for allowing us to use uh, this building on Wednesday nights. Uh, some of you saw us parading out of here in the middle of your Bible study. Uh, we started September the 7th. Uh, we were using the, the back classroom for a disciple-making class. We call it a micro-group. And that was the start of this year. Um, it's a year-long journey. Sometimes it takes a little longer than a year. And you'll be hearing a little bit more about it during my message. But we, uh, Philip graciously allowed us to use space here from September 7th till sometime in November. And uh, we have continued to meet. We're just meeting in another location. And the reason we met here, our pastor, um, lives north, further north, and his son was practicing football in Gracemore. So we were trying to find a location where he could drop his son off, meet, and then pick him up when we get done. So this was a wonderful location. Uh, this is a community that I am very familiar with. Uh, I pastored at Tower View Baptist Church from 2000 to 2011. Knew Fred well and uh, fellowship with him quite often and uh, miss, miss this community. We, we saw God do some wonderful things while we were there at Tower View. And um, I have a, one of the three gentlemen that's in my discipleship group. Uh, he's with me this morning, Matt Dunn. You're gonna hear from him in just a little bit. That we met uh, when I was at Tower View and then recently reconnected and um, You'll hear a little bit more about his story uh, during my message. But again, thank you um, for allowing us to, to use that space. Um, my bride, Darla, uh, we've been married uh, over 41 years. She's worshiping at our home church over near Weatherby Lake. Uh, but she sends her greetings uh, as well. Everybody have the notes? Including you, Connie? I'm watching you back there in the corner, okay? And everybody got a pen? You're ready. Good, good deal. Good deal. How many are familiar with the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Anybody ever? A couple hands there. It was published in 1989. It was on the uh, New York bestsellers list for a record 250 weeks. It is still, after 33 years of publication, right at the top 100 best-selling books. A central theme of this book is to be effective. To be effective, you must have a personal mission statement. To do so, you must start with the end in mind. Where you want to get from here to there. Years ago, when I was reading Seven Habits, I was captivated by the, the visual metaphors that he would use. He, he, did, he does such a good job of taking a principle and, and, and fleshing it out, and doing so in a way that you just will not forget the way that principle works. For example, the seven 
ha the, the second habit of the seven habits is begin with the end in mind. And to help us remember what that means, keep the end in mind, Covey challenges us to visualize attending your own funeral. And you come in and you sit on the back row and you listen to what friends, family, and associates say about you. Isn't that interesting? And so you begin to live your life the way you want people to talk about you at your funeral. Begin with the end in mind. It is the same with the local church. Having a stated mission statement, and even more important, a mission statement you live and operate from is critical to an effective and impactful ministry. So, mission statement. What's the mission? What's the stated mission of Moment of Truth Church? Any hands? What's the mission statement of this church? Is that the stated mission? <laughs> That's part of it. <laughs> I get a... What's that? Okay. And I bet if all of you thought about that for a minute, we'd probably get 20 different responses to that. I get that same response when I ask churches that question, church leaders. What's the mission of your church? Shouldn't that drive what we do? I, uh, when I was here, talking to Philip, looking around, I, the only place I could find, as close to I could find, a mission statement for the church is on your website. It's something that Fred set up when the church started, way back in 1981, is that right? And he stated it as four goals for the church. Number one, you may want to jot these down. Number one is to proclaim the uncompromised word of God. Number two, a loving fellowship. Number three, minister to the needs of God's people. I would assume that's missions. Okay? And number four, win souls for Christ. This morning, I want you to take your Bible with me, and I want you to turn to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. This is the mission of the church. However we choose to state this mission in our context, this is the mission of the church. Matthew 28, I'm going to begin reading with verse 16. And if you're able to stand, would you stand with me as I read Matthew 28, beginning with verse 16. When the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, 
When they saw him, they worshipped him. Now notice those next three words. What does your translation say? But some doubted. We really haven't changed it a whole lot, have we? Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and do what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Would you bow with me as we pray? Father, we bow in recognition of your presence. Lord, your word is precious, and your word is powerful. I confess that there are times that I just take your word for granted. So much so that I can read it and just set it on the shelf and not think another thing about it, much less obey it. But God, we want your word to be the authority in our life. We know it's the ultimate truth. It is the absolute truth. And we want that to be true in our life in every way. The Lord, we do thank you for your word. Your word never fails, because you never fail. Your promises always hold true. So, Father, as we look into your word this morning, do the correcting work. Do the challenging work. Do the transformational work that only your word and your spirit can do. And give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and responsive hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated, unless you want to stand for the entire message. <clears throat> all authority, as audacious as that sounds, it is true. And with authority from heaven and on earth, we are commanded to do what? Make disciples. That's right. Did you know that in this entire Great Commission, there is only one, only one command? The Great Commission. We're to go, we're to make disciples, we're to baptize, and we're to teach. But only one of those words is a command. Which one? No. You want to try again? No. Connie said it. To make disciples. Listen, I'm going to take you back to your high school English days, okay? You know what a participle is? It is a verbal adjective 
Trust me, I had to look that up. I didn't know that, okay? I did better in Greek and Hebrew than I did English. No, 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 no exaggeration there. The word go, the word baptize, the word teach are participles. It's a verbal adjective that supports the command to make disciples. So in other words, the participle defines the command or the verb. So what the command is here is make disciples. So when do you know a disciple is made? When they go, when they baptize, when they teach. So that others will do what? Go, baptize, and teach. According to the moment of truth church mission statement. When do you know that a disciple is made? When he or she is winning souls for Christ. Are you accomplishing the mission that God has given and entrusted to this church. The church has one primary command. That mandate is to make disciples. And if we miss this mission, we're merely going through a religious ritual. We're missing our mission big time. If we are not making disciples who are making disciples who are making disciples. Why did Jesus give this mandate? Because this is how you win souls for Christ. This is how we baptize. This is how we teach. When Jesus stood on that mountaintop in Galilee and he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. Who is he talking to? His disciples. He was talking to, to us. He wasn't just talking to pastors. He wasn't just talking to certain Christians. He was talking to all of us. That's a mandate that God has called us to pursue. There are two questions I'm going to address this morning. You'll see this in your notes. Number one, the first question, what is a disciple? Now there's a considerable amount of confusion regarding what is a disciple. And I'm, I'm going to share with you a good example. It's something I came across a year ago reading a book by Dallas Willard. If you've ever read about the spiritual disciplines, Dallas Willard's a good place to turn to, good source. And in his book, The Renovation of the Heart, he shares a story from a pastor in Texas who challenged his congregation to understand this fact, that all Christians are disciples. There's no biblical distinction between the two terms. There's not a higher order of being a Christian. And in response to his challenge, a woman said to her pastor after worship, and I quote, I just want to be a Christian. I don't want to be a disciple. I like my life the way it is. She went on to express, Oh, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, and I will be with him when I die. 
So why do I have to be a disciple? How did we end up with this unfortunate yet common distinction that you can be a Christian without being a disciple? Folks, I believe her conclusion is because of what she had heard over and over and over again in U.S. churches. She has heard and accepted just part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just part of the gospel. Oh, how we love the part of Jesus is my Savior and accept the paid in full part. We like that. But we avoid the other half. Which is what? Jesus is my Lord. He holds all authority. The Apostle Paul said, and you'll see this in your notes, 1 Corinthians 6.20, you have been bought with a what? What was that price? His death. When you follow Jesus, and he is truly your Lord and Savior, your life is no longer yours. And oh, how we like the benefits plan version of the gospel but let's not forget what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. And he said to all, if anyone, who does that include? Everyone. If anyone would come after me, he must what? Deny himself, take up his cross. Every Sunday? Oh, daily, daily. And do what? Follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses their life for my sake shall save it. Notice to whom Jesus is speaking to. All. Why? Let me ask you about that. Why did Jesus use such harsh language here? Deny self? Take up your cross? Isn't that a little harsh? I believe his words sound harsh because we live in a society of self-gratification. If I don't like it, I'm just leaving. Yet for all those who follow Jesus, he said, deny yourself, to deny self-worship. And why did Jesus go to such an extent? Because he knew that our greatest temptation would be to put self on the throne. Often when I'm sitting down with a non-believer and talking about sin, I'll ask them to define sin. And you know, one of the most basic ways to define sin is what's in the middle of every sin? S-I-N. Anytime I is on the throne, that is sin. Jesus knew that. Look in Genesis 3, 
It's in your notes. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Jesus goes to the very heart of the matter. Deny self. Toward the latter third of your notes on page one, there are three definitions I'd like to share with you. The first definition comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 19, when Jesus said, Follow me, and I will make you, what? Fishers of men. So from that verse, I've always been drawn to define a disciple this way. And it's in your notes. You'll have to fill in a few blanks. A disciple is one who follows Jesus. Put that down. Follows Jesus. Is being changed by Jesus. Put that down. And is on mission with Jesus. So a disciple is one who is following Jesus. He's being changed by Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. So one of the shifts that we're seeing in the disciple-making world is we're transitioning from gathering more and more and more information to transformation. That we are actually being held accountable to apply God's Word to our life. Another definition. A disciple is a self-initiating, reproducing, fully devoted follower of Jesus. In other words, people are coming to Christ and growing in their walk with Christ because of you. And you. And you. We're not remaining as spiritual infants or children, but we've grown up in the faith to the point that we are now spiritual parents, that we're reproducing ourselves. That was Jesus's view of evangelism. That we're growing up and maturing in the faith and becoming spiritual parents, not remaining as spiritual infants having to be fed and fed, but we're feeding others. And they're coming to know Christ. And they're growing up in Christ so that they can go and baptize and teach. But yet, every year in America, in the U.S., not around the world, but in the U.S., how many churches close their doors every year? You want to make a guess? How many? Hundred? Hundreds? Anybody dare to guess? How many churches close their doors in the U.S. every year? Higher or lower? The minimum number is 4,000, up to 6,800. So if ever you think our, our church will never close their doors, that's not true unless we start making disciples and get back to the mandate that God has given us. Here's a third definition. It's a definition for discipleship. It's what I do every week with three men. Discipleship is an intentional relationship in which we walk alongside other disciples in order to encourage, equip, challenge one another in love 
to grow toward maturity in Christ. This includes equipping the disciple to teach others also. This definition so embraces what Paul said to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2 when he said, Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So with this in mind, how would I respond to the woman Dallas Willard referenced in his book, The Renovation of the Heart? The woman asked her pastor, why do I have to be a disciple? Well, ma'am, because Christ commanded it. That's right, Susie. But also, you really don't have to be. However, the choice the New Testament does not offer is a forgiveness-only option. It is tragic that in so many churches there is an unstated assumption that a person can be a Christian without being a disciple. And folks, I just don't see that here in God's Word. Here in the U.S., we've allowed for far too long two classes of followers, the ordinary and the extraordinary, a Christian and a disciple. And Jesus did not have a tiered ranking of followers but the same standard for all. In fact, take a look at this second page of your notes at the top. The New Testament is a book about disciples. Did you realize the term disciple is used over 260 times in the New Testament, while the term Christian is used three times in the entire New Testament. Question one, who is the disciple? Question two, how do you make disciples? In Luke chapter six, you'll see this in your notes. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God, and when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named as apostles. Now, we're not too sure how far into Jesus' public ministry the choosing of the twelve took place. Many say between six and nine months. And in this passage in Luke, Luke is stressing that this point in Jesus' ministry was significant as well as strategic. Jesus spent all night in prayer with the Father. And we can only speculate what Jesus was talking to the Father about. And this is one of these times, friends, that in the scripture I would have loved to have been present for. What was Jesus praying about that night? Could it be Father? You really want me to spend three years with Peter? And Judas? Really? Did I misunderstand you there? Now, I believe Jesus had a pretty good idea of whom he was going to choose, but that's just my humble opinion. But one thing for sure, this was a serious point in Jesus' ministry because at some point... He was going to entrust his ministry and his vision 
with them. Have you ever stopped to think about that? That Jesus entrusted his ministry, his mission, into the hands of these blue-collar individuals. Well, most of them. <coughs> Excuse me. Thank you, Susie. <clears throat> but not only that, as you let that enormity of that thought sink through your mind, he has entrusted his mission to you and I as well. What a sacred trust. What an awesome responsibility. What a great opportunity. Here's a key question, and I put it in your notes, and there's a blank, a significant one. Why did Jesus choose a few? Jesus, he could have started the largest church we have ever known. But he didn't spend a whole lot of time with the crowd, did he? Notice in your notes, why did Jesus invest 90% of his public ministry with a few rather than the masses? Nine out of 10 hours, nine out of 10, Jesus spent with the 12, and even more significantly, with three of the 12. I put a verse in your notes from John 17, verse 4. Verse 4 is part of Jesus' priest, high priestly prayer the night that he was arrested in Jerusalem. And as Jesus prayed to the Father, he said, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished or completed the work that you have given me to do. Now, wait a minute. Think about when Jesus prayed this prayer. This prayer was prayed before the cross. Yet Jesus says, having completed the work you have given me to do, what work was that? He invested in and now was entrusting the mission to those he had discipled. Think about this, folks. The greatest person who ever walked upon the face of this earth did not rely on preaching, but rather his investment in a few. What Jesus modeled for us during his public years of ministry was relational intentional disciple-making. Discipleship must be about transformation, not more information. Disciple-making is not a class you attend or a program you complete, but rather a process. It is a lifestyle. How many of you are familiar with this term? Hot house effect. You read anything about global warming, you hear a lot about the hot house effect, right? I was reminded of the hot house effect when Darla and I went to Alaska in June of 2016 in celebration of our 35th wedding anniversary. The produce in Alaska was incredibly larger than anything I could grow here in Kansas City. Why? because 
that produce in Alaska got 80% more sunlight than it got here in Kansas City. After three decades of field practice and 14 years of personal experience, we have discovered a process of disciple-making that results in accelerated growth. It's something I discovered while I was at Tower View, and I haven't left that process. It's what I call the hot house of the Holy Spirit. This process is in the context of no less than three and no more than four gender-specific groups called microgroups wherein disciples make a commitment to seek God's Word together once a week for approximately a year. I have witnessed change life after change life in accelerated fashion, including my own life. Jesus had a microgroup, and so should you and I. Matt Dunn, come on up here. Matt and I are currently in a microgroup together. You've met Matt, for those of you that are here on Wednesday night. And he shared with me an email a couple of weeks ago that I want to share, have him share with you. Is this on? Okay. Everybody hear me fine? My name is Matt Dunn. I am a business owner specializing in high-end tile and stonework in residential construction. I've been in a disciple-making group for two months now. It's now been three months. When I was invited to participate in the one-year journey of disciple-making, I was struggling with severe grief caused by my wife 22 years passing away from pancreatic cancer. Our meeting started just one week after my one-year anniversary of my wife's passing and I was still so lost and overwhelmed with grief. I initially felt a bit intimidated since the group comprised of two pastors and another man who have served in church ministry for many years. I wondered what I would have to contribute to this group. I knew I would probably grow the most having the least amount of experience. I quickly realized that this is what I've needed for many years. This process has already given me a purpose and direction it has brought me back to the correct path, my walk with God. As noted earlier, it's been two months since we started, and two weeks ago, I was asked to lead our microgroup. It was amazing and simple. Follow the lesson, share what God said to me as I read his word, speak from my own experiences and from a humble heart. I felt so confident and blessed at the end of that. For me, I have had enormous growth in such a short time. It has helped pull me out of depression and helped me be excited about life and my future. It is exciting to me to think that I have at least another 10 months in this disciple-making experience with these brothers in Christ, and then I can share this journey with many others to come and for many years to come. Amen. It's a privilege to have you in our microgroup, brother. I remember standing with him out after the second week. He said, I don't have anything to offer to this group. I said, you're going to be surprisingly, you're going to be really surprised that you have already offered to us several things. And I shared with him how his transparency and his openness was so refreshing. He said, well, I hadn't thought about that. 
Well, that's just the beginning, my brother. Isn't it? Isn't that what we... <laughs> it was right out here in this parking lot. In your notes, as I get ready to conclude here, I want to share with you why are microgroups so much more effective than being in the large group of five people or more. There's a significant shift. Now, let me add to this. For 30 plus years in serving in three churches, I have always been a big Sunday school guru, Bible study guru, small groups, home groups, and I still am. There's a need for them. But you're not making disciples in Sunday school. We're not making disciples here. Worship is to be pointed to God, to give Him all the glory. It's not about so much about us, it's about Him. We've got to shift. And this, I'm going to tell you what's some of the shifts that occur when you're in a group of three or four. From information to transformation, from a classroom to a lifestyle, from unnatural pressure to natural participation, from hierarchical to relational. Yes, Matt has something to teach me and my pastor, <laughs> and he has. From dialogue to dynamic interchange, from limited input to wisdom and numbers, from addition to multiplication. Let me share with you why I put from addition to multiplication. In 2017, my wife and I joined a church for the first time in our marriage as lay people. I was just finishing with a microgroup and needed to start another. I invited two men to join me at this church. One was an elder. His name is Strad Ruhr. One group, 2017. Currently, there are well over 50 microgroups in this area in the Midwest. Over 300 believers meeting weekly, making and multiplying disciples from over 25 churches. It is a movement of God that has never been seen and is so needed in our American churches. This is happening globally in exponential numbers, but not here in the U.S. The gentleman who wrote this material, Greg Ogden, will be in Kansas City in April. I'll be telling Shirley and Philip about that. But listen, he stepped away from the U.S. 12 years ago because it was not being received by pastors. So we went global. Since then, we're talking hundreds and thousands of believers being discipled. The material is now in 31 languages. There's a hunger for the gospel. And we're seeing something happening in the U.S. that we have not, I have not seen in my 35 plus years of public ministry. Church, it is time we get back to Jesus' model of disciple making and multiplication. The American church has become a consumer church where most church goers rely on the preparation of one. Churches in the U.S. are more much like the Raiders Chiefs game yesterday in Las Vegas, where there were 70,000 screaming fans in the stands who need exercise and 22 men on the field who need rest. And it's time that we get out of the stands and we get on the field. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And when he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, 
but the laborers are few. We must get back out into the field. It was 1988, Olympic Games in Seoul, Korea. The American 4x100 relay team was poised to break the world record. And there was no doubt in anyone's mind that this American team could or even would lose. The question was, would they break the world record? The first leg was exceptional. The second leg, they were already right at the world record. Third leg surpassed the world record. And then, moving into the fourth leg, as the baton was passed, the unthinkable happened. <clears throat> the baton was dropped. Not only the quest for gold, but the quest for breaking the record or even ruining the race was over. Paul writes to young Timothy, urging him to pass the baton. You see, the Apostle Paul was always thinking three and four generations ahead when he said in 2 Timothy 2.2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 1 Timothy 4, 7, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It is time for you to pick up the baton and begin to pass it on. It is past time for you and I to begin to pass the baton. Would you bow with me as we pray? Father, again, in recognition of your presence, we bow. We bow because we are in desperate need of you. And in response to your word, we bow and surrender to your word. Lord, as we walk with you by faith, every time you take, you call us to take a step of faith, generally it puts us in a position where we've never been before. And it causes us to rely on you and not ourselves. To rely on your promises and not our past. And so, Father, as we have heard your word this morning, we respond to you by faith. For we pray this in Jesus' powerful name and all of God's people said, Amen. I want you to say,